0: The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkill will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, how you doing, and thanks for coming back to another episode. I kind of got caught up in, you know, traveling, teaching, uh, hanging out with Lola, and all that stuff, so I haven't really been, like, cranking out the podcast like normal, so I'm catching up on some material that I captured previously, and this week I have an interview that I got at the GEP conference in Brazil back in August. So um, some of you might know the name Blake, some of you might know the studio name Nomad, Um and when you kind of think back to some of the first studios to really like put their stamp on what body piercing was, at least in, in North America, uh, Nomad was definitely one of those shops and, and Blake was one of those piercers. Um, might have had like a little bit of friction with some other piercers, you know, some other kind of factions of the, the early days of uh, piercing studios and, you know, who was kind of, trying to say, like, you know, we're going to carry this torch, this is our style. And some of those early businesses tended to clash. So you might hear some of that kind of come through in the interview. Um, I uh, talked to Blake a lot about what inspired him uh, with, you know, more of an an indigenous kind of aesthetic and some of the connections to his own uh, family history, uh, part of the inspiration there. So we talk about quite a bit. So let's go ahead and get into this interview with Blake
1: from Nomad. So, hi, this is Blake. I work at a shop called Nomad. It Started in San Francisco in 1993. And uh, I'm here with the crew in Brazil. And uh, I got to watch
0: your presentation yesterday. And as a piercer who, who came in a few generations after you had already been piercing, um, you were always one of those names that was that was held up, uh, one one of the kind of like driving forces of the the industry. But hearing it in your own words, um, the way you articulated how some of the stuff that people might see as commonplace with body piercing today, like stretched earlobes, but that really kind of originated from your studio through your influences. So maybe that is kind of a jumping off point. Um, what was it like? <clears throat> kind of taking some of those cultural influences that that you were passionate about and trying to introduce that to
1: a new generation, a new community. Mm. It was a a challenging road from the get-go, particularly because we had to uh, completely look to the past to move uh, techniques Forward, mm-hmm. So, our influences um, came from, you know, my grandmother traveling so much, uh, and wanting to embody that aesthetic meant uh, we had to live it and practice what we preach. So, uh, but it was uh, very controversial at the time, and we had a lot of uh, pushback from the our small group of peers um, because we completely rejected what was considered protocol, what was considered what you could do um, in a piercing studio. But when Christian and I, you know, came together to uh, realize that we had to do our own vision, um, it was necessary to reject everything else essentially and um, you know it was uh, mostly other piercers who were willing to uh, let us do the the nomad thing on them and uh, you know guys that are just a little younger than me but were willing to you know step up and come in and you know I remember the day I pierced Alan Faulkner's conscience at Nomad in front of, you know, Fakir students who freaked out. Yeah, and um, Fakir said, "Well, like you guys probably are not going to be an ideal fit for being teachers at the school," mm. and uh, you know he understood what we were doing, but uh, it he had to support it through body play and his media uh, because he had a way that he wanted things done in teaching. And that's what was apparent from the get-go in the industry is that, okay, well, we're not going to pierce like gauntlet piercers because I don't think I'm going to be able to limit myself to a 10-gauge piercing. Mm -hmm. nor will I get Master Piercer bestowed upon me by Jim, so, uh, you know, knowing how frustrated Christian was to work there and to feel like he could not, you know, he was the the one guy with earplugs in the whole company.
0: Well, to kind of pull it back and and give (coughs) people who are listening especially like younger piercers maybe less than five years in the industry like at the time you know there was the gauntlet faction the the body manipulations faction and then there there really wasn't much for professional piercing studios and a lot of the different kinds of styles and flavors of body piercing was you know directly influenced by the nomad kind of style which you could see as as the the future generations getting more into large gauge and scalpeling and pushing boundaries and and all that stuff it it must have been really strange kind of trying to fit into the mold of of gauntlet or the the mold of fakir or something like that but realizing that you didn't necessarily fit in that mold and it was
1: time to make your own yeah um, (coughs) that's a astute observation Um, It it was just always clear from the get-go that the only way we could follow our passion is to completely break everything down and uh, redefine uh, Redefine procedure which at the time we were we were not looking at it like that, but I was able to uh, enjoy some freedoms when i worked at body manipulations that i know was pushing it for the company but von also had a partner esther who went to amsterdam and opened body M there and i i don't even know if they're still there but you know he like all of us start out with a partner um you know the that's the seed of the idea and some people are not meant to you know Coexist as business partners yeah. long term, which is how I've ended up you know running nomad for twenty eight years myself and uh you know there have been other nomads seated you know in Melbourne, Australia, and Carlin's shop nomadas and uh, uh, you know I think the kids in San Francisco are in uh, San Rafael now, and uh so it was you know. It was a very ambitious thing to uh, spread a, a radical change of technique at the same time as trying to spread a, a a cultural ideology because the only reason to do what we wanted to do was to promote indigenous awareness and to let people understand that this is not mtv it's not the gay fetish community and uh, that there was a different group of people that wanted to explore uh, cultural origins and to have a a reverence for you know historical precedent that has been cross-culturally prevalent in all all cultures Uh, and So it was a a technical learning curve, it was a a spiritual learning curve, and it was uh, realizing that we could not fit in unless we were just going to create uh, something different, and uh, the aesthetic was, you know, part of it incidentally, but it really was always like, I want to practice what I preach Hmm. if I'm going to cut people's ears big, I better goddamn well have them myself, you know, and uh, it was, uh, you know, we were afraid a lot of the time, like the cops were at the door, you know, and uh, it was also uh, created a lot of problems for us, it was not intentional, but, you know, having Gauntlet piercers come to Nomad and then go back the next day with you know the day that Christian did a bunch of eight-gauge geeshers on Brian and uh, You know we open the shop at night and Then he goes back and shows Jim and you know it was we were not trying to piss anybody off but you know If you wanted an eight-gauge geesh you had to come to our place at night (laughs) You know um, it was really cool during your presentation
0: to see some of the origins in your own passions and interests through your grandmother and, and her travels throughout the world and her documenting different tribal practices for aesthetic expression and all that stuff. So what kind of age were you when you were, were getting exposed to, to that material? Like how young did it kind
1: of spark for you? Um, I was just a little younger than George and, uh... I met my grandmother for the first time when I was 12 and she just, she brought me in the basement and she had fucking volumes of 16mm, Super 8, like just old tech, not tech even. Um, you know, watching grainy videos of her with the Kayapo chief in 1960, Yeah, uh, it really stuck. And now looking back, it's amazing how she was able to, you know, get on a fucking propeller airplane to the Amazonian jungle where you could just disappear, you know? Yeah. Um, I have a new appreciation for Grandma just coming here, you know, bitching about a 10-hour plane flight and one or two connections. It's like how the fuck did she do it with her, you know, heavy cameras, uh, you know, and she started traveling in the late 40s and early 50s. And, you know, so much of that, those, these are tribes that are gone now. Yeah. Well, even just
0: what you showed in the class was pretty mind-blowing to have that direct link because for me some of the stuff that woke it up for me was like National Geographic and that's several steps removed from the actual culture you see the documentation but you don't really have much of a personal
1: connection but you had such a personal connection there yeah i i feel very fortunate um because it was my first magazine i subscribed to it's always been like you know the gold standard for me of uh, you know seeing a tribe with a big libret and uh but coming from that family legacy and uh, you know, having four children now that try to pass on the stories, it's, uh, it, it, Joseph Campbell has always written about cultural mythology and before we could do this, uh, the stories were told by elders and passed on to the children the same way the elders would pierce a baby's ears. Mm-hmm. And that was completely normal. And that was the mythos of humanity that has been passed down generationally back to Neolithic times and before.
0: Over a a career that spans as long as as yours have, I'm I'm sure you've seen huge differences between day one for you and, and present day just in desires of the interest, aesthetics, what clients might be more interested in, things like that. And it seems like a lot of that stuff that, part of my brain kind of pegs it into like, the BME kind of style of like big and crazy and scalpels and punches and stuff like that. um, That has just drifted away, one generation of piercer to another. Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of it is that people are just scared to talk about it for legal and liability reasons. Maybe aesthetically they're just not it's not their thing, it's not what they want to provide or something like that. So when you talk about cultural heritage being passed down, you know, parent to child, parent to child, uh, I think a lot of that is is kind of getting lost in today's industry. People come to a, a class and, and they're almost shocked when they then they hear you talking about using a scalpel and cutting and, and doing these like dramatic initial holes and things like that. I'm I'm less intimidated by it, but it's not something that you see today in the same way because I think people's motivations have shifted into more retail body piercing rather than some sort of a personal connection whether it's sexual or aesthetic or or whatever it is so how does it make you feel seeing the modern industry versus the industry that you helped to move forward? Uh,
1: It makes me feel old uh, and it makes me uh, feel fairly disassociated from uh, the things that have Come subsequent to my early work. And I think uh, technology is very much to blame for that. Um, kids don't read books and magazines now. Everything's here. And I think the human capacity for uh, learning is being reduced to mini clickbait sound bites. And uh, that's how humans are processing information and uh, at my age, um, and I will be 56 in October, is, uh, you know, I did not come from that time. Uh, So I have to be very selective. I'm completely underground at my shop now. Um, Nomad cannot be found by Googling. You know, my people know where I am and everything is like by appointment and uh, I've had to filter out almost everything in order to keep my uh, internal constitution intact. Mm. Through <coughs> my career, a lot of the last few years
0: has, has really turned into that whole tiny little gold and lots of you know, standard earlobe piercings, which I'm, I'm happy to do, I'm, I'm happy to focus on making it as, as clean and positive of an experience as possible, but I, I really miss being able to express something and people's motivations to to get something being more personal in in a way like it I don't even really know how to fully articulate it but I miss that whole experimentation phase of body piercing and sharing and and trying new things and, and now it's really more of a Um, copy what you see online kind of thing which I'm I'm guilty of also you know a lot of people come in with their phone and say I want this and I say well I'm I'm happy to offer you that you know and it costs this much and that's how I pay my bills but I really do miss those times where it was like I don't know let's figure something out and try something nuts and and
1: push boundaries and and try things and I I do miss that yeah well that says that you've been piercing a long enough time to have seen the change and uh, I think that that's quantitatively experiential and having a you know every piercer has like uh, you know their kind of base that they started from but uh, it's it's weird to do a piercing now uh, you know on a a iPhone you know with grandma watching the whole thing and uh, I think it's again technology has uh It's dumbed us down as a species, but it's also diluted the core integrity of what is really behind the process. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there's a reason that every ancient culture has used gold. It just fucking looks better, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, It's nicer. We all... No, there's no money to be made on steel and titanium. It's it's all mass-produced now. And uh, I think we kind of encapsulate ourselves, at least I do, in the time when um, my biggest uh, breakthroughs with procedure uh, stem from needing to experiment and doing things that only other piercers were willing to let me do on them and uh, you know having that mindfulness of well, this is how the chief did it in this tribe and the zoe or the paturo cut a big labrette in a six-year-old kid mm-hmm. and uh, I remember seeing that video and being like fuck that's a hell of a starter plug you know, for a child. But it's completely normal. And that cultural precedent is, is the validation. It is the reason, you know, culture is consent. And that was something that uh, kind of evolved um, after I started piercing children. And it became necessary to really push back against the Old uh, gauntlet, uh, like you have to consent thing, and it, if if piercers were to do that, like none of us would be here piercing. The the reason we all can make a living doing this is because all societies on earth there was an elder piercing a baby, and that was the rite of passage that indoctrinated that child into the tribe and nobody was asking their baby, are you ready, do you want to do this now? Can we sign the release form? You know, and that was my theme in Color: is culture is consent, and that I think is something you can put on my tombstone. It, it, it is the, the validation of the entire process if you really you know, embrace what that means spiritually. So talking about um, stretch lobes
0: was really fascinating for me because someone that you know I started my career in the the mid to late '90s, so stretch lobes were they were there and they were very visible, you know, for for me through magazines and what the internet was at the time. Um, but for you, you were really the driving force of of saying like this is a practice that can be done. Um, there are some boundaries that we can push uh, to, to kind of bring this into our culture as, as piercers. Um, so what was it like to you? Were the, were the first people getting those bigger lobes, were they almost exclusively other body piercers? Or, or what was that like for you kind of creating that, <clears throat>
1: that community? Initially, it was almost, you know, the friends of the shop, your favorite clients, people that were absolutely willing to let you do anything you wanted. Um, and then simultaneously other piercers. Uh, and that, that's always been a, a sort of a, a strange thing to realize that I was the piercer to the piercers, most of whom became extremely prominent uh, in their own right subsequent, but they were the people that were willing and let me do the thing and uh, that's a very humbling experience to to know that that's a lot of trust you know it's almost mind-boggling to think about how completely it wasn't just rejecting the you know the limited you know gauntlet procedure that you know my partner had to contend with Um, but it was it was looking back to move forward, to like reintroduce this aesthetic. And by default, I was uh, creating a procedure. that I mean, there was definitely trial and error to it for me. But um, it, it settled into a groove very quickly, you know the first time somebody bleeds out and needs a blood transfusion it's a better be paying attention so you you know don't make that mistake twice and uh, you know I it was always about things being corrective uh, so much of uh, like the initial scalpel work that I did was you know people that had a a two gauge hole that was too low, and then they had a mile of room between the top of the piercing and the anti tragus. And it's like, well, the hole is too big to stitch up already, so straight up the line, you know. And uh, I mean, it was really awesome to see this kind of before and after, but uh, it it created a lot of problems for us, you know. We had to lock ourselves in and do things at night, and uh, You know there's cops outside and um, but uh, we were undeterred Uh, was you know once you do it you realize that this is this is how you honor the ancients you know and obviously there's still belly buttons and noses in there uh, but uh. what
0: were what were some of the to make it more of a procedural question if you're if you're Doing something like that that's inspired by the old ways, but you're trying to kind of create the new ways to, to perform it. What were some of the, the trickier parts that you had to kind of figure out
1: as you went? Um, one of the ones that jumps out at me is uh, you can't use a taper if you're cutting somebody's ear from nothing to one inch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it became... Uh, about having a a sort of a a spatial acuity to geometrically calculate the distance of cut, whether it's lateral, vertical, um, and to be able to undercut and minimize bleeding. Yeah, because you wanna have some pressure once the jewelry's actually in to slow the bleeding. Yeah, I had to learn lessons like that the hard way myself. It's scary when you you realize you just went through a big capillary structure and there's, unless you have epinephrine, you better figure the fuck out how to stretch it enough that it, you know, clots it, essentially. And I spent, you know, a decade closing up big ears that I had put there and people got out of the industry and so they could get their straight job that is a full circle moment. Yeah, I bet.
0: You know, jewelry didn't exist for that. Um, so where did where did the thought process and innovation for that jewelry come from? Because w- did you say that essentially it was kind of limited to maybe around a, a 12 mil, half
1: inch kind of size around that time, and then you were pushing it forward? You mean as far as initial piercings? Yeah. Um, you know, initially, 2-gauge, 4-gauge was the starter stud for every set of ears. Um, It was fairly uncommon for us to do, you know, 12-gauge captives on somebody. And it just astonishes me that people would come and ask for it. Like, there was no advertisement. We sure the fuck didn't talk about it, but there was enough people out there that, you know, came home with see-through piercings. And uh, that is testament to the power of word of mouth, I guess. Um, like, you know, we couldn't afford hate and Ashbury, so we settled for Hayes and Ashbury. And, you know, just a couple blocks over. And uh, I've never, never advertised, really. It was uh, unbelievable that word of mouth was sufficient to, like, I don't know how the fuck people came up from San
0: Diego. I think people started to feel like it was a movement, and they needed to be part of it.
1: Maybe that was the uh, the magic of the haight Ashbury, because the same way it, uh, the same way people you know gravitated to Woodstock, and they didn't watch it on TV or read about it; they were you know just they just knew. And hippies driving across the country and just everyone just there's a a psychic Vortex that kind of draws people to that place and I uh, I Saw that at work with Nomad for uh, You know from the get-go and now we, we would promote it and you know hashtag, hashtag. it yes. and it's, I'm like, Fuck I'm not I'm not hardwired that way and that's okay.
0: Well, I think you can also bring in a more specific, targeted kind of clientele and community when it's one person who's passionate sharing that to another person who's passionate rather than people who are just moderately interested and they're kind of dipping their toes
1: in the water. It's interesting how, like, I mean, I only have Nomad as a reference and I have, you know, rarely worked at another shop. Um it's interesting how a studio kind of creates its own uh, identity by virtue of that psychic vortex like the energy of the piercers manifests what the company does you know the ideas that went behind it and I I think there was a lot of, especially because I was, you know, a young man in my mid-twenties that there was a lot of mindfulness, like thinking about grandma's movies, realizing that there was a cultural precedent and knowing that everything that existed at the time had to be rejected in order to honor the ancients in the way that has been done traditionally
0: you know, sometimes when I, when I do talks or whatever, I kind of refer to it as like a family tree sort of a thing. And, you know, this branch led to these piercers and this piercing style, this branch, this branch, you know, Fakir, Nomad, Gauntlet, all these different kinds of like flavors, Mr. Sebastian, all these different things. And you can kind of see it trickle down through a family tree today. And, um, I don't want people to think that, some of those styles of piercing that you see you know large initial gauge and, and all these different things uh, that they just came out of nowhere you know it's it's a driving
1: force that, that was pushing it forward yeah it's amazing to see but you know it's pretty easy to pin down all the uh, the initial radical ideas yeah uh, because chronologically it's I think you can't reinvent the wheel, and I think that might be uh, one of the biggest challenges that faces, that younger piercers face now, is uh, I, I genuinely, especially if you think about for a second what has been on BME, um, there's really nothing else you can do. You know, I mean, I I can't even quote what I said, but some, you <laughs> know. I have some just absolutely absurd conversations with Fakir here and myself about what's the next thing. And it's, it's almost like a comedy sketch because there's, there's really nothing else to do.
0: I think that it'll, it'll probably end up cyclical in a way, in the way that like, you know, bell-bottoms are coming back kind of a thing because as you talked about it, uh, you can't just put this stuff out there freely because then you have legal and liability issues so people who have massive experience oftentimes uh, have to kind of do it more secretively you know it's it's you have to know somebody who knows somebody to you know that that kinda of connection um, so these newer piercers they don't have exposure to that kind of information and and I think there were, there will be a point in another 10 or 20 or however many years where they'll have to rediscover these things again because they'll be kind of gone from the modern industry and then they'll have to bring it back and then they'll have to recreate it in, in some some new form. So there might not be a direct evolution into some like insane, attach a third arm <laughs> to your armpit or something like that, but mm-hmm. large gauge piercing or certain kinds of genital piercings or, or whatever other body mods, body art, if it kind of dwindles away in this column, eventually it's going to be refound by this other column, and they're going to have to maybe rediscover how to d-
1: how to do this and and why they're why they're doing it <clears throat> yeah, that's true, and that you know again, time becomes the driving catalyst for change for reinvention for rediscovery, and that you know. If you look at time as a linear process, uh, I think it's, you know, I remember looking at stuff on BME and being like, fuck, this is partially my fault, (laughs) you know? And, uh, And then Shannon asked me to, you know, balance it out and would I be willing to write something which I recruited Alicia and uh, a friend of mine Christian Noni to write articles and it was like this little hidden like you'd never (laughs) fucking find it the nomad cultural corner and it's just not going to get the likes and swipes that you know severed genitalia is going to get and uh, you know I that's when you feel like you're old and conservative because I I look at younger Pierce's and I'm like, fuck man, you better stick with this career (laughs) because you're not gonna get work anywhere else. Yeah, That pinky finger's not gonna grow back. Exactly, you know. This was a a funny story you just reminded me. Um, In 91, uh, I had already done a few cuts at body manipulations and Vaughn and I intentionally started a rumor just to see what would happen that I cut off his pinky finger and he was wearing it in his ear and literally the shit spread like wildfire and people would come in and say are you the guy who's wearing your severed digit in his ear and we just fucking laughed and It was, but that was like a word of mouth time and we just wanted to fuck with people just to see because everybody was coming to Body M at this point and it was a uh, it had, we had a very diverse staff, you know Melissa, who's the only person to ever work at gauntlet and body manipulations you know Vaughn was mr. handsome, and like every girl wanted a piece of him and you know uh it was a it was a very inclusive thing, so it i think uh this is kind of shifting the thought a bit but uh body manipulations was really the pivotal point where everything gauntlet was rejected, and uh, you know, it was the punk rockers and just people that were like, I want a navel piercing because Lollapalooza was happening and MTV was happening, and you know, that was part of my motivator for um, getting my old friend Vaughn to consent to an interview with uh, Ari and uh. That was my my thank you for giving me my first job, and he's such a humble guy. And he's been out of it so long. He's like, I can't, I don't want to. I was like, come on, man, do it for me. <laughs> and and I had to really work on him, and he did it. And I was like, people have to hear this, you know, like I don't want them to forget this guy that gave me my first job, and. Gave me the opportunity to completely change everything and bring back things that I realized were so culturally relevant and uh, I got to you know cut my teeth at body M and have a boss that you know like I was Really reluctant to let another person pierce me until I saw him and I was like this guy's fucking best i have ever seen and uh, i was like all right there you go do it up and uh you know having to get a 10 gauge needle made that was literally it didn't exist you know and i said and you're going to stretch that to an eight because you're not putting that 14 gauge toothpick through the head of my shit. it's not going to happen and uh it it got my co-workers thinking and you know he got you know Vaughn had like half-inch ears. People would like stare at him on the street. And then I'd come trailing behind and like people were having fender benders over it, you know? And uh, there was so much to get through just to get a, you know, a foothold on making an impact. Uh, People are still catching up. Well, that kind of
0: leads me to... Talking about you know freehand non-clamp kind of piercing because uh, the gauntlet style you know Jim Ward really likes his gadgets you know I think maybe having that, that mindset of a, a, a jeweler and you need all those tools to make jewelry and so obviously you'll need all these tools to make a piercing but you were more like well if you, if you look at indigenous cultures like they have something sharp and then they have something that they put in the hole they make and that's about it. So where where were like the, the drivers for like your the techniques that you were developing with that?
1: <clears throat> you know, one thing was uh I remember the day Christian said, Don't clamp that belly button, let's just fuck it all, you know? And I was already punching large cartilage and it was not easy to get a you know, a ten, twelve millimeter dermal punch at the time. And you know we had to you know work our doctor connections and you know it was well, we were kind of repulsed by the expense you know but uh, credit where credit is due i still use tapers that i bought from gauntlet manufacturing decades ago and i remember buying them out of everything and i was like how the fuck do they even have this and then i remember a piercer name John Egg, and he came out, you know, and he was like, what do you do with this stuff? And they just had it. You know, a 5 base, beautifully concave taper, a three-quarter taper, you know, things in, you know, sixteenths, and uh, I just, I think the gadgetry was uh, not essential for us just because, here's my needle pusher. We don't need to use a piece of, it just disconnected me from the process. And uh, I don't know, just having to relearn everything and having that freedom initially um, was like a huge blessing in retrospect. But we had to make the reality for ourselves because it did not exist at the other two places. And uh, just being allowed to do certain stuff when I worked at Body Manipulations was, I knew I was pushing it, you know, and he's like, just be cool, don't let Esther know, you know, just come, you know. And so it was like on the DL even then. You you told a really
0: interesting fact that all the larger jewelry, all the the large wood jewelry you had all came from one person who was the, the father of a client. So could you, Repeat that story for the for the podcast because that yeah. was
1: fascinating. Yeah, so um, the client was Gregory, and I had you know gotten him from nothing to like three quarters in a, a pretty short period of time. He had like low twelve gauge piercings, and I uh, you know, re-pierced him, and then I give him a vertical cut. He just happened to have the anatomy to you know accommodate it. And his father Ed was the the man that literally approached us and said. I make wood on a lathe, you know, would you guys be interested? And we were like, oh yeah, this is, it was as synchronous as it could be. Just having, uh, and he just made beautiful stuff. And you know, uh, I remember walrus ivory, fossilized walrus ivory, Australian tea tree, and uh, you know, a lot of things that, uh, concentric inlays and, you know, these were not uh, saddle plugs. They were, you know, straight, un- unflared uh, wearing surface. But he made them for us in 16-7 inch. There was a whole generation of kids that rejected everything that we did. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, guess what? I'm going to chop off my balls and do a transgruddle if I even keep them, you know? It's like, eh.
0: Well, there's also the... The the branch off the family tree where they went into like the the hyper cleanliness kind of thing and they kind of shunned the, you know, like the the tribal inspiration kind of vibe, you know, um, cut and and big stretch. And now everything is so precise on this technical, you know, sterile glove kind of level and all that stuff. So I I think it's probably a natural driver for one generation to want to, you know, eclipse the, the previous
1: generation in a way. I think it's true, and I, I call that the, the uh, medical redundancy and smoke-and-mirrors effect. Um, you know, I don't see tribal elders wearing gloves, you know. Uh, I see it as medically redundant. If you, if, if you can achieve biological sterilization with a pressure autoclave versus your statum isn't the end effect, the same sterilized tool in a pouch being opened into an airborne environment. So, why the fuck do you need a drapeneer? Because that person's going to walk out of your shop and start fiddling with their dirty fingers. Mm. That's, we've all seen that. And I, uh, I had talks with Alicia about this years ago, and it was just like, eh. it looks good in a video clip. You know, look at this hyper sterile piercer and their statum and their fucking you know, before COVID and I'm like, yeah, but they still got a dirty shirt rubbing on it and you just fucking contributed to a bunch of landfill and maybe you can justify your service charge now more because you did all this extra shit that is absolutely fucking moot the minute they leave, you know, so what's the point? So I think the end goal of, you know, the chief with an obsidian blade and a wood plug is literally, I mean, look at their piercings. They're the ones that we all look to as the, you know, poster children of, like, there's a fucking librette, go to Ethiopia, okay? No gloves there. And uh, I think people are not aware of that uh, dichotomy, the the disparity that is... uh, the pushback of the younger generation to, oh, yeah, well, like, mm, well.
0: I think a big driver, too, for, for someone like the hyper-cleanliness, because, admittedly, I'll, I'll put myself in that category of sterile gloves and statums and all that stuff, but I look at it as more, well, it's it's a way to protect my business, too, you know, make everything as clean as possible so that if somebody were to have a problem with it, I'd have this chain of documentation and steps and processes to sure. be like, well, it was after you left my, my my nice clean studio that this thing happened. But I can see both sides of it. And I think part of it that you remind me to, to, to mention someone is Alicia was always this great person to talk to in that way where it's just like, yeah, fuck it, you know, you can do it with Obsidian and this and that, but in my studio, I'm still gonna do this and I'm still gonna do this, you know. Cleanliness step and, and all that stuff. I, I miss being able to like debate and argue and talk with her and have her call me out on bullshit and everything.
1: Yeah, she was a invaluable resource in America. And, uh, you know, she was the reason that I first came to Mexico, to Tlaxcala. I was her piercer. So, you know, it, it was really about, you know, spreading the message down here. And, uh, what better friend to have than, you know, a woman who could say, he punched those, okay? And, uh, you know, cutting her lip at Anna Paula's shop, that was like, that was a huge deal for me. And, uh, you know, knowing Anna Paula and Russo for so long and, you know, just being around people that were more relaxed about it and, uh, you know. She had it for years and, uh, It's all, it's all relative, I guess. I got a (laughs) P. pee. Okay.
0: A a question that Jeff wanted me to ask you is, you had so many different innovations, you know, when when like the nomad chapter of your career started. Um, Were there any innovations that that you saw that you weren't necessarily a a direct part of that you kind of wish you had gotten to first around that time? Uh,
1: you mean like Steve Hayworth type stuff? Yeah, I mean anything, jewelry, piercing
0: style, anything
1: Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that Nomad, uh, Nomad had gold a lot uh, earlier than a lot of shops, for instance, and that's, uh, connected to what we were talking about last night, but that's another chapter we can't talk about, um... No, I think uh, being able to champion techniques that include punching, scalping, and freehand, if I never did anything else, I would be fine with that. But it, it was, I always come back to it was a big battle, and we were afraid, and we were doing so much of it, and uh, trying to keep it low-key, but you can't send people out there who come home with a see-through hole without it getting around. Um, It's not exactly subtle. Exactly. Um, I, you know, I think that was what I was not put in a preordained way, but that was my thing is to be able to uh, proceduralize tribal modification in a context that involved a disposable scalpel gloves and an autoclave and maybe some gauntlet tapers and uh, they made damn good tapers and it was funny buying them and the piercers had never even looked at them and that you know that just said that they were waiting for us because I was going to be cutting labrets with them and uh you know, this is just pops into my head. There are people who I think have been relatively forgotten, not surprisingly ex gauntlet people, but uh, John Cobb. And I remember the first time I was in New York and I saw a uvula piercing. Yeah. And it blew me away. And I'm pretty hard to impress with something like that. And I was like, Can I see and yeah John did it at the gauntlet and that made a big problem for him there and He didn't stay long because I mean come on dude look at what he was doing At New York gauntlet. It's like bro. You better. This is not going to last It's just too far outside the box Um, That is one thing that sticks out in my memory as something that uh, I cannot claim that I had anything other than I did one uvula piercing and I got puked on, <laughs> and I would never do it again. But I wanted to know could I get it done, and uh, you know I tip my hat to John Cobb for putting something on the table that was light years ahead, you know, and I think any any skilled piercer would say God damn. Okay. Yep. Good job, Myself man. Myself included. How yeah. the fuck did you even do that? And one was the end of my uvula career, and I thought that's good. Well, at least I got it in, and thank God it was a fixed bead ring. And it's all about tools inside somebody's mouth, and hope their gag reflex isn't uh, faster than your piercing. Yeah. Um, that's really the only thing that jumps out. You know, I think. Uh, I think. Unintentionally, Nomad Brought Too Too many uh, New ideas To the table But it was Necessary In order to Actualize uh, Indigenous Aesthetics And uh, I'm good With that Like You know I know that There's You know I'm sure There must be Cool things Happening um, And Piercers have Invented great stuff subsequently but I don't think you can reinvent the wheel and I think uh, you know cut off your ears and you know tattoo your ear holes black and great it's just not for me because that's how old and conservative I am now like it it needs to have a a cultural precedent otherwise it's not going to happen at Nomad and that's why there were a lot of old-school piercers that were willing to you know do that because it was clear that it worked and uh, that it could be done safely and uh, You know I Don't know what's going on anymore, and I'm good with that. I think maybe Something will come and it'll cross my radar and I'll say fucking cool, man. I'm not gonna do it piercing children is you know was controversial enough for me to resign from APP because of the blowback from that. And, uh, you know, very few piercers understand that uh, spiritual obligation. I'm not going to send the kid to the fucking mall.
0: I had the exact same conversation with Alicia. Exact Mm -hmm. same. Because, you know, I'm... Comfortable down to about six years old, mm-hmm. earlier than that, and I'm just not—I'm not comfortable around kids. Honestly, I don't have kids of my own, and it's just—you know—I'm not comfortable with kids. Um, but I remember the way that Alicia articulated it, and it was kind of the same thing. It's like, what's the alternative? The parents—it's just part of their family culture. They want to have it done for their child, and they want to have it done safely, professionally. And where are you going to send them if you say no? And just that alone was something that it was really difficult to just mentally process of like oh yeah, I'm basically just sending people to Claire's anytime I say no. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's definitely something that you'd want to think about.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it was interesting for me to see, you know, like the last time I looked at the point and there was a, you know, a thing about piercing kids and I'm like, yeah, fuck you people. You should have <laughs> called me because I have 20,000 children on my website and I fucking have four kids and my oldest children were the first babies I pierced. And how could I not? You know, 12 years in then? And I was like, well thank God I wouldn't want to do this as a new piercer. I think that's another whole topic. Sure. Um, one thing that Sean Porter has is uh, one of the only Fakir and Blake talks I managed to salvage, um, which is Fakir telling a story of how he pierced a baby a gauntlet and nobody knows this um, but I sent the, the story to Sean and it's like 20 minutes with Cleo in the background talking about their plane tickets and stuff and I didn't know that until like five years ago hmm. and uh, so technically I was the second guy piercing children but that didn't go over very well with Jim you know and it was clear that fuck here was you know unborrowed time As far as working there and he had a school to do and he had to to, you know perpetuate his uh, You know ideas of piercing techniques uh, to a generation of piercers that wanted to you know learn and uh, you know How long you know has Jeff been teaching there 15 years? That's That's a great legacy to leave behind that. You know, there's still guys out there that are in their mid 40s that are still kind of keeping that going. Um, anyone else that you would want to
0: kind of point out as, as someone who maybe doesn't get enough credit from
1: you know, that, that era of piercing? You know, uh, I think Vaughn is that main person. I mean, like, that uh, BTSA thing, uh, BSTA, uh, was my attempt to thank him for giving me a job in 1990. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of kids that, you know, don't realize that having piercing, branding and scarification on your fucking door 32 years ago, that took balls, man. And uh, I branded there for, you know, Vaughn is the one that taught me how to do it. And uh, he doesn't get enough credit And he doesn't give a shit, you know? I give a shit enough to come down here because I'm still running Nomad and three decades is a long time to be the piercer at one place. And I think I got another 10 years in me. Um, I would love to start shaking and lose some dexterity, but uh, it is not happening. So I realize that I, got another nine years to go. We'll try trying
0: to rush towards that too soon. Yeah, it's,
1: you know, looking back at three decades, it, it makes you aware. And I think the older people get, especially old piercers, the more disassociated they become from the thing that they helped create. And uh, that can be said from everything from cutting and stretching to suspension, you know, uh, things that were, done on a stage in San Francisco in 1991 I think uh, there's always going to be something that comes along somebody that thinks of something uh, I read the the post about the ear projects that GEP did and there's a typo because it says 5,000 piercings it's 500 and doing 500 piercings that I'm sure are the only ones uh, was a uh, self-imposed like can you fucking do it and you know i'm like eight short you know and it there was like a renaissance of it for like 10 years where like i would do three projects a week and it took time to design it and make it fabricate the jewelry but i just wanted to push my own technical envelope like can i do this and can it heal you know this Girls a pro snowboarder in the X Games and she got my first vortex and You can't order that barbell you have to make the fucking thing to fit the person's ear because everybody's anatomy it's like a fingerprint, you know and uh, You know, I don't have anything to prove to myself anymore and that's fine and so for me now it's about you know letting the right people People that are open or want to know, people that are curious and want to understand the history, uh, to disseminate the information—it's just too much time, too much stuff, fucking too much.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing it. You know, even if you feel like it's just tip of an iceberg kind of thing, I appreciate you sharing it. And I appreciate you being here, and I'm sure all the other attendees really appreciate you being here. And just keep sharing.
1: Thank you, thank yeah. you for doing this and being open to it. I I know that things that I say can. It's not intended. I'm not trying to piss off Jim. No, I you know I don't I don't really see it that way. I see it as. I think that perception exists.
0: I, I'm I'm positive it does you know because um, Jim Ward and all everybody you know once you get to a certain point uh, you become sort of an idol and you 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 know everything gets kind of all the edges get polished off you know mm-hmm. you see that with everybody you see that with Shannon's legacy I'm sure one day you'll see that with Alicia's legacy um, where yeah like business people, people that are trying to build a legacy and grow something, they're going to have conflict. There's always going to be someone else that has their own vision, and then those two visions
1: clash in a certain way. You know, if you wanna change things, you have to piss off some people along the way. And it's not intentional. If you're gonna really bring something new to the table, and this is something Fakir always encouraged. He knew what I was doing from day one, and he said, I'm gonna help you bring that to, you know, magazine stands. And uh, he was completely unafraid. He was just, you know, all right, Blake, let's get naked and you'll be closer to God, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was fearless in that way, the things that he was doing, you know. Uh, everybody has to create their own thing and the edges do get polished off. and. I remember being a little reluctant with the Ari interviews and he said I won't allow anyone to whitewash history. They need to hear, you know, there was a secret battle to, for me to bring all this to everybody and uh, it, it took uh, courage and perseverance to do it and uh, I knew that it was going to ruffle feathers and that's okay. Um, because things would be much different had I not. And uh, that's a good legacy to have. Uh, And I hope that it continues and that younger piercers will find something new or different without, you know, severing their parts. Um, And I, I would love to see it, you know. Keep on keeping on, people. So...
0: I know you have uh, DVDs here is is there anything that you would maybe want to
1: promote on the podcast to kind of share and disseminate? Um, since I pretty much retired from uh, any kind of social media I think if people want to see any of this uh, Nomad Archive uh, to some degree they'd have to you know buy all the old books um, I don't have any but um, Sacred Debris does and and uh, I found a box of uh, DVDs with, uh, you know, guinea pig piss and uh, under a bale of hay, and it was a good time. So I have 27 more, and uh, I brought 23, and I think people just gotta fucking read and dig, and I hope Shannon's legacy will continue. But I can't look at the internet anymore because uh, I've I've had to deal with a lot of, uh, you know hate mail from APP piercers that I'm mutilating children, you know uh, so It's uh, <laughs> It sucks to be me so to speak, <laughs> you know, it's uh, I I just have to do what's in my heart and to honor the heritage of all indigenous culture that we all emulate in some capacity uh, That has to be done um, with integrity and It's not always a smooth road all right. Well, thank you for, for your time. Absolutely. Um,
0: anything else you want to include at the end? Contact info, anything? Nah. All right. Thanks for talking to me, Blake. I appreciate the time. Uh, I'm happy that I could get the episode finally produced and, and published for you. I've got a backlog of, of stuff that I want to get out for you, and hopefully before the end of this year... Uh, I've got another interview that I recorded in Brazil uh, with Matthias Tefel. Um, some of you might know him as, as Rata formerly, and uh, that's a, a really good interview talking about his his days piercing in Argentina, and Central and South America. Uh, I've got an interview with Kevin Jump where we talk really quite a bit about scarification, our our motivations for like what inspires us, what gets us excited to take on a project and and what we try to offer people with scarification. Long conversation that kind of plants the seeds for other scarification conversations uh, that I'd like to have on the show, bring some people on and, and maybe start really kind of exploring that subject matter. Um, I've got an interview that I recorded with Caitlin McDiarmid, the APP uh, administrator. We talk all about the, the scholarship process. That would be one that I would really appreciate if you'd, uh, if you'd share it to other piercers that you think should be applying. Uh, that might benefit in, in applying to come to the APP conference in 2023. Uh, the scholarship season is right now. Applications are open right now. So I'll have an episode uh, explaining a little bit more about that. Uh, I have some uh, ideas for stuff that I want to record with, with Lola, with uh, Evan Quinno, my, my other piercer at the shop. Uh, so I, I got some plans for you leading up through the next couple of weeks. So thanks for listening and come back for more soon. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like piercingwizardpodcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC, all rights reserved.